This is Mike Micah, and you're listening to Xbox One Party Chat. Xbox on. Game on, baby. Wow! And welcome to Xbox One Party Chat Podcast, the official podcast of the Xbox One subreddit. I am this week's host, Ross Miller, and I'm joined by the modmeister himself. It's Delicious Cheese, a.k.a. Hello. I just talked right over you then. Podcasting 101. Hey guys, how's everybody today? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad, Reese. And unfortunately, Uncle Jesse is currently on a plane. So we've managed to arrange a very, very special guest for you. It's Mike Micah. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Hello, everybody. Um, it's It's been a while since we talked, Ross, um, but it's really cool to be here. Yeah, so for those listening, I do other podcasts, and Mike was on one of my other podcasts as well. Yeah, so. <laughs> not the same podcast, but you know. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've not talked to him in about a year verbally. I'm always seeing you on Twitter and things like that. Exactly. But... For those who don't know who you are and why Mike Micah is such a big deal, <laughs> can you care to explain who you are? I'm kind of a big deal. Um, <laughs> I've been uh, making games for probably north of 20 years now. I, I hate to think about that, but it's true. And uh, I've worked on almost, I think, I think I've just surpassed the 200 game mark. So it's it's been kind of a crazy career. People might know me for... Um, a game called iDarb on Xbox One. It's an indie game that uh, we released a year and a half or almost two years ago now. And um, we also have done a lot of other games for like other Microsoft devices, like Windows Phone stuff. We did a Gunstringer game. We did uh, Monsters Love Candy and all stuff. But then in my career, in my whole history, I've worked on everything from Street Fighter to Rock Band. To, uh, I mean, you name it. And we had a game called Death Junior that launched on PSP at the launch of PSP and all stuff. So had my hands in just about everything, work with just about every company from Konami to Capcom to EA to you name it, Activision, all those guys. Uh, worked on some really awful games and some really good games. And uh, then also people know me because I do a lot of work in game preservation and uh, I hunt down uh, prototypes and all sorts of stuff to make sure that we preserve these things for future generations. And so I'm in a documentary called Atari Game Over that a lot of Xbox people have probably seen because it was on there. And uh, we dug up the ET cartridges in Alamogordo, New Mexico. And then um, I've worked with like the Smithsonian Museum here and then the Library of Congress, stuff like that, to try to help coordinate getting games preserved for, for people in the future. And uh, part of that really is just the challenge of getting game developers to realize that the stuff they're working on is valuable as far as like in historical context. And that's probably one of the first hurdles we have to tackle. So I do that stuff. I've worked on so many games where people kind of recognize me for being the Donkey Kong dad, which was like a few years ago. I hacked Donkey Kong for my daughter and I swapped Mario with uh, Pauline to have you rescuing Mario, and that, that just exploded too. And so a lot of people actually recognize me for that. But that's kind of it in a nutshell. So, so basically just... you're saying you have the dirt on everyone. I do. Oh, man. Like that's When I get out of the game <laughs> industry, the tell-all that I'm going to be able to like provide to people is going to be so good. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. So you just you mentioned that about Donkey Kong Dad, okay? And that was the first article I ever read about you mike to be honest with you <laughs> and you know is it weird being called the donkey kong dad like hacking mario <laughs> it really is because uh 
growing up, Donkey Kong was and was a game I loved to play when I was a kid. When I was about my daughter's age, I would play it. And then here comes my daughter at three wanting this version of Donkey Kong because she really she liked Super Mario Brothers 2 when you could play as the princess in that game. And so it was a, a matter of like going back to Donkey Kong, which she actually understood how to play, and then her just posing the question of like, why can't I play as the girl in this one? So it was one of those things where, you know, as a programmer, it should be my duty and job to be able to do any sort of request like that. So I spent a couple of nights just hacking away at that. And it was so weird because I was sharing it with people online and not expecting anybody but my friend circle to be interested in it. And by the, like, two days later, like, I'm showing up on, like, national news shows and getting, like, interviewed by worldwide press and stuff for this hack that I would never have thought anybody in the world would have cared about. Um, but it just so happened, the reality was, it was happening at a time when Gamergate was coming to life. And yeah. um, the Tropes versus Women in Video Games series was launching with a lot of hate going towards that kind of thing. So this got caught up in that. And because I was heads down working on other projects, I was clueless as to what was going on in basically the game community and that sort of thing. So I got kind of caught up in that. All the, you know, it's kind of interesting to get death threats and stuff like that, which was amazing. Um, but <laughs> it, all, it all worked out. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like it's the internet, right? Like if somebody doesn't want to kill you, you're not doing it right. <laughs> oh, what I just want to know is, is how are you still alive? Have Nintendo assassins not been dispatched yet, or? <laughs> You know, it was amazing because the thing happened, and uh, I wasn't trying to, you know, subvert Nintendo. I've worked with Nintendo for a number of years, so it was like one of those things of like, oh, I wonder what they're gonna think. But the next show I was at, everybody I knew at Nintendo that I'd run into, they're just like, that was really cool. They they actually liked it, and so it was one of those things where they would never probably publicly endorse it, but they all seemed to enjoy it. And I'm you're on my Xbox Live list, um, so I can see the games that are getting played on your Xbox One <laughs> through my friends list. So I just want to know, how do you plan to help your daughter defeat Thanos? <laughs> uh, well, after dinner today, she made her list today that I posted. Um, she had this really incredible list this morning she made for herself for her day's worth of gaming, because she isn't, she isn't back in school yet, so she wants to cram a lot in. So she, she wakes up, she wants to eat a bagel, she wants to play Disney Infinity, and then she wants to have lunch, she wants to take a break that looks like most of the day, then practice on Disney Infinity again. Then when I come home, she wants to play with me in the Guardians of the Galaxy world to defeat Thanos. And that's like her last line before going to bed is defeat or destroy Thanos. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, we'll destroy Thanos tonight. That's great. <laughs> she thinks big. She so, does think big. <laughs> so what, what's your thoughts about the Disney Infinity closing down, actually, then? Uh, I was uh, that was a bummer because actually from the outside you're looking at it going like this has to be Titanic it has to be successful and Titanic yeah. being the worst word for it because for it to just suddenly like sink for no almost no apparent reason other than that the only thing I can think of is there was probably some amount of money that they had to recoup but with a big effort and gargantuan effort of this whole thing that they just projected they weren't going to hit which is so sad because the game is really good my kids love it every kid I know that plays it was really into it. And um, it just doesn't make any sense that that business model wouldn't work. Uh, but, you know, now we're finding them all super cheap. My kids are super happy for this moment. It reminds me of, like, 1983 when the game crash happened. And I didn't know anything about the business. I just was sitting there looking at stores going, like, games are $2? This is, the, this is amazing. I'm going to buy every game with my allowance. <laughs> it's the same thing with my kids. They're like, well, they can buy every Disney Infinity figure. It's so cheap. That actually... So, uh, uh... That actually leads us into our next question, actually, and that is, speaking of the the game crash and when you were a kid, what uh, what made you get into gaming? What what was some of your like early gaming habits and impressions and all that sort of stuff? My first gaming experience was, I think it was Space Invaders. It was Space Invaders at a drive-in, and uh, it was the at first a time I ever seen, at a movie drive-in. I, I can't remember what movie it was. 
But I was like waiting for the movie to start. My parents had us there, my brother and I, and they had their little rotunda where you go to get popcorn and all that stuff. And they had a video arcade game there of Space Invaders. And there was actually a crowd around it. And I'm looking at it. And from my mind, like TV was, and, and you know, movies and everything were never interactive. There was no possibility of anything interactive. To see somebody controlling something on a TV screen was mind blowing. And I don't think people can fathom that today how impactful that was then because when you're growing up and the world is like set rules, that's one of the rules that you would never see broken or even think of having broken. So that blew my mind. Here it was, I was probably going to see something like a star Wars where, you know, people, these actors are, you know, stopping and invading force or something. And like, here's the ability to actually do that yourself. That would just blew my mind. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I would start drawing pictures about that stuff. And my dad would take me to other arcades that started to crop up around that time. And so I would be introduced to other games. I remember, Asteroids was an early one I had seen, and Carnival by Sega. These games were just like amazing to me, and so I had no idea that that like later that year I think it was for for Christmas I would get an Atari, and I didn't even know what an Atari 2600 was. And so I remember opening this big box on Christmas morning and seeing the Atari, this wood grain monstrosity, and uh, which back then wood grain was you know top level. That was a thing yeah, of beauty, that was, man. That was elite stuff. Um, but and then seeing these screenshots of all these games, and I, I recognized some of the games, one of them being Space Invaders, and sure enough, my dad picked up that game as well. And I didn't, again, it was one of those things I couldn't imagine being able to play these games at home. We did have uh, this Pong clone at our house, and I remember like my dad and my mom were so bored of playing with me that I would just have to play Pong by myself. I didn't have a single-player mode. So I'd just sit there with one hand on each paddle and just try to play against myself for a long time. So getting an Atari where you can actually play games where you can just play solo without breaking your brain was uh was was amazing and that got that was my that's the beginning of my love affair for for making making and um playing games because as i was watching these things happen i started to think about like well what does it take to make these games and who makes them and all stuff and it was uh i think it was in third grade and that was when our school first got their first home our first computers which were the apple II, and they rolled them in on these carts because they only had two for the whole school and there was like i don't know probably 400 of us or something in this school, and so they would actually roll these things into classrooms to let you have some time on them. I remember our teacher brought it to the front of the class, was explaining what it was, explained what a monitor is and stuff, and I'm like, come on, come on, what else does this thing do? And she was listing all these things that you can use a computer for, and one of the things she said was, you can actually make what you guys like, or the, the video games you play, you can make those on, on computers, and that's how people make video games. And then my, you probably, she probably heard my brain explode in, in the head case, <laughs> because like, from that point on, I just insisted on staying in on recess and trying to figure out how to make games on the Apple II. And I had a partner in crime at the time, this guy, Chuck Henrich, who uh, was a little bit ahead of me on the computer front. He, he would tell me about how computers work and all that stuff, but like, I never thought about them being game-making machines. So he and I would sit in on recess and make these really crude, terrible games, and uh, I got better and better at it. And then eventually got my own home computer, which is the Commodore 64, and I, I stand loyally with that machine for the rest of my life. Um, and I learned how to program on that. And that's how pretty much my game career started because I started selling software at the local computer store for the Commodore 64 that I would develop. Nice. Amazing. That's a long answer to your your. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great answer. Uh-huh. We asked somebody else that before and they said cats. Yeah. That. <laughs> um, and cats. And cats. <laughs> uh, now, just when you were talking about Atari, of course, the, the documentary that was all over Xbox was Atari Game Over. Um, where you went over to the desert and tried to find all these ET cartridges. What was it like making that and and fulfilling something that so many people viewed and talked about? And it must have been incredible, Mike. I watched that last weekend. 
Oh, you did great. What, did yeah. you like it? Yeah, it was good. You be honest. <laughs> I, I can be it honest. Sucked. It's good. Oh, it did not suck. It was better than uh, video games. The movie. Oh, good. Mm. That, that's an okay movie, but it's like it didn't. I felt it for gamers. It wasn't really made for gamers because yeah, everybody kind of knew what they were talking about. Exactly. Yeah, I was like, okay, cool. It's, 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 I already know. the movie or whatever. It felt like that that movie that like grandparents need to use to educate themselves or something. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly my thoughts. But anyway, sorry, please answer the question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't let me drag you off. No, and uh, so it, it was amazing because as a kid, I would read about uh, during the game crash because once I kind of figured out what the game crash was, it was only through video game magazines at the time that I figured it out because these magazines would cease to publish and they would always have reasons why. And one of the magazines that was coming near an end was talking about the game crash and how Atari had buried all these ET cartridges in the desert. I think it was Joystick Magazine or something. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that's my memory of it. And uh, that stuck with me because I'm like, why would you bury perfectly good video games that you just give to anybody? Like, why bury them? Give them to like kids in the hospital or something. And it was just, it drove me nuts. So when I moved out to California from Michigan here in the U.S., um, I started working for a magazine called Next Generation Game Magazine. And one of the first kind of features I wanted to write for that magazine was to try to find where these games were buried and get the full story behind the burial of these these Atari games. And I had only I, I remember getting so far and then just kind of finding a dead end, but I had a lot of notes on it, and it just kept bothering me. And so finally, it was through uh, a friend of mine, this guy, Gary Witta, who... Um, He's a screenwriter now. He also wrote for game magazines at the time. If you see Rogue One this holiday, it's his handiwork. Um, he uh, was going to be in this documentary. He said, oh, I, I got a guy you should interview, this guy, Mike Micah. So he told Zach Penn, the director, and stuff to reach out to me. So they reached out, and we just started talking quite a bit, and I started to consult a lot on like uh, some of the background information, who they should be talking to, and all this kind of stuff. And they invited me to be part of the documentary, and that was like amazing to me because it would be the end of this big like kind of lifelong search to find out where these games were buried and everything. And they'd done a lot of the work already. So they invited me to come out to the desert, which was like straight out of a, a Spielberg movie with the sandstorms going on. And like, you're inhaling this like awful smelling diaper smelling dust and they're drilling away in this hole. It was, it was amazing. And like the thought that they would probably not find something, have like a um, Geraldo Rivera, like Al Capone vault moment was always kind of like nagging us as we're doing this because we weren't quite sure. There's this guy who says for sure this is where these games are, but it was really hard to really trust him because, you know, after 30 years, our, our, his memory and what he had to find the place was still kind of like suspect. So um, to have that all kind of happen and go down and do that with some good friends of mine, this guy Ernie Klein who wrote the book Ready Player One and stuff, like these guys were also just having this nerd fest out in the desert. And when we're doing this, we thought, okay, here's just a few of us out here. Hopefully we find something. But the day of, when we finally arrived that morning and the sun's rising, it was like being on tattooing in Star Wars. And we have Howard Scott Warshaw who made E.T. there. And it's a very emotional thing for him. Then out of the like sandstorm comes like a line of like hundreds of people who want to come and see this too, which was mind-blowing to us because it got out that this is happening. They invited people locally to come out and literally hundreds showed up. And it was like a scene out of Lawrence of Arabia as well where it's just like this line of people coming through the desert and cheering on Howard and everybody digging and stuff. Uh, I don't think I'll ever experience anything like that ever again, and it was it was just amazing to be part of it. If anything, wow. you made Naomi Kyle from IGN smell for a few days, <laughs> according to her Twitter. Yeah, Major Nelson was there, wasn't he? Yeah, he was there. We had Jeff Rubenstein there. Uh, we had, I mean, just so many people came out of the woodwork. To, to the people flew out from all over the world just to be participating in it. Who had also had that kind of calling, almost that close encounter. I keep making movie references, but like the close encounters thing where you're like, you, it's in your head, it's like, this means something. 
people from all over the world came out for it. And uh, the people we met there became fast friends. We still talk uh, and about this that day and everything that kind of happened and what was found. And there's so much to it. And uh, to meet all the locals, to me, that was the most amazing thing, is to meet the locals who were kids at the time who would sneak into the, the, the dump there and try to steal the games. And so it was like no wonder that like back in the day when they were just burying all these games, everybody in that town in Alamogordo had an Atari in every single game because they had all pulled it out of the dump. And the reason they had put cement over it was to keep people from doing that. And it didn't stop them. They went in there and smashed the cement and still pulled games out. So people arrived with their old games that were these crushed but still working games that they had held onto since they were kids. And these kids who would, they would tell stories about how like they hopped the fence and one kid had a snake bite and had to go to the hospital because there was a snake in there and all stuff. It was just amazing to hear stuff. And half of those kids who broke the law and broke in to get these games are now like on the city council and stuff. So <laughs> that's how this whole thing was able to happen because like they, they were part of it. And so it, it was it was pretty awesome. And that's pretty amazing. But uh, I'm going to bring us back a little bit closer to uh, something that most of our listeners are probably familiar with, uh, um, especially the younger ones, basically. And that's IDARP. Uh, that yep. is your your big major uh your big major game for the xbox one uh and it launched as part of the games with gold program um so basically i want to ask you you know tell us a bit about the game uh your inspiration behind it where it came <laughs> from because i know it has a pretty cool story and also uh, about launching a game on games with gold yeah so that was um i had just come off of working on a, a number of projects where i was playing purely a production role and growing up as an engineer and making my own games, uh, I was starting to get the itch to work on something. And I, I started something kind of on the side, never intended to be a real product. And I started with kind of the Donkey Kong thing in mind. I'm like, well, you know what? I had a great time doing the Donkey Kong thing and sharing that with everybody. Start some code that draws a little box in the center of the screen, and I'll just ask my friends online what I should do with it. And it would just be this fun nightly thing I can do after I put the, the kids to bed and I'm still not asleep. I can just work on this fun little project. So I started doing that. And the first thing I drew, uh, I, I had a tweet that said, like, it draws a red box. What should I do next? And that's where IDARP came from because people started to give me suggestions with the uh, hashtag IDARB for it draws a red box. And so as people started giving me ideas, and one of those people who gave me ideas was a friend of mine uh, who everybody, I think, knows, which is Tim Schaefer. He was one of the early responders, and I, I have to thank him all, all the time for bringing the attention to it because I don't think it ever would have taken off had he not made some suggestions and his whole user base seeing that started to jump in and throw ideas at me. And then you can only imagine, uh, being that this is on Twitter and the internet, that like, and if you say, hey, what should I make? You're gonna get tons of people responding with the stupidest stuff you've ever heard. Mm -hmm. And so that became kind of a challenge for me. It was like, how can I take these really horrible and dumb ideas and make it into something? And uh, I think my, my, my original thought was, I would do all this stuff to make the worst possible game ever, then use that as like a panel discussion at a game developers conference about how crowd design is like, horrible and all stuff but the weirdest <laughs> thing started to happen is that the game started to become fun and with, with with all these dumb ideas and so it kept getting better and better and then even when i tried to make it stupid and, and more stupid and more stupid it just drew more attention to it and like people liked it even more and so at the end at the end of the day it became a really fun game within just a matter of weeks and during that time chris charla who was kicking off the idea at xbox program i had worked with him before and we're, we're close friends and stuff like that. He was watching what was going on online. He's like, hey, do you mind bringing this over to Xbox Live, or, you know, ID at Xbox on Xbox Live? And I'm like, sure, but I don't have an Xbox One dev kit or anything. He's like, I'll send out a couple. 
And so they did that. They got it all set up. And then he was also like, hey, in about two weeks of the Game Developer Conference, do you think you'd have something to show? And we're like, two weeks? And this game's not even really a game yet, but people seem to like it. Uh, so we just said yes, because why not? It's you, How many opportunities do you get for it? So we took the dev kits. We poured it over in about a week. We had it playable. We sent it off to Microsoft. And we're like, yeah, this is great. And they told us where we're going to be. We're going to be at the Microsoft lobby bar and all stuff in the Game Developers Conference. And so when we showed up, it was one of these situations where I thought we were going to be part of like a kind of like an Xbox Live lab kind of setup where it's like, oh, here's games in progress and there's nothing that's going to be published or whatever because we had no plans to publish this thing other than just to make it for fun. And so when I show up, like, they put us between, like, Titanfall and Dead Rising, these complete awesome games that were already out. <laughs> and so, like, I remember, like, going around the show floor going, like, is there anybody here I can talk to? Because I don't, I think there's been a big misunderstanding. Like, our game is not really <laughs> even a game yet and we probably shouldn't be here and all stuff. But no, they insisted that's that's fine. They said they wanted to treat indie games as if they were like flowing, even if they weren't completed. They'll put a little sign up or whatever. So I was like, all right. So the day of when we opened, people come by and go like, what the hell is that thing? Because like we, hit, the thing was is like we had built this thing with just samples we pulled from the internet. Like everything was just pieces from the internet. We didn't own any of this stuff, so it was kind of like a gray area thing. We shouldn't probably be showing this stuff because we didn't own the sounds, we didn't own whatever at the time. And so uh, we had this thing running, and like probably within an hour of the show, more and more people kept coming back. They would go and get their friends and come back. And by the end of it, we just had crowds around the game for the full duration of the show. And uh, immediately afterwards, uh, Microsoft called up. They wanted to sign up for Games with Gold, and they offered us a really good deal for that. And um, and then we started getting all this press coverage. I mean, every major press outlet wanted to cover the, the game. And a lot of it, I think, had to do with it's an ID Xbox program game, but also it was very unique because it was integrating the Internet in a, in a way that hadn't been done before. We were actually letting people tweet to the game live and affect the game. And we had all these character creator things where people can make QR codes and share characters and do all stuff. So I was doing all this stuff with the Xbox that people hadn't seen before. So I think that really helped too. But here we are, this game that we're just doing on the side, probably getting more attention than any other game we'd worked on in the last few years. And it literally was just something that was just like out of our control and already kind of like had a life of its own. And so it was just a matter of wrangling that over the next like seven months and trying to get it to some sort of thing we could close off and just ship. And so as that was happening, as people were interacting with it and everything like that, we launched on Super Bowl Sunday here in the U.S., around worldwide, actually. And uh, that, was, that was one of those things, too, where it was like, leading up to it, we're like, oh, Super Bowl Sunday, if that's the only time we can release it without waiting another six months, that's terrible. Because who, who would, in their right mind would launch on that day? So, but we did. We launched, and thankfully, because of that internet kind of interactivity we built into it, like with Twitter and Twitch, the word of mouth got out really quick because we're handing out codes for the game weeks before it was officially out and yeah. people would stream it and we just encouraged people to stream it. And so the word of mouth actually picked up and it was really big. So by the time we launched on Super Bowl Sunday, we should have had barely a, a blip on the radar. We had 16 years of gameplay on that day alone and wow. it exploded after that. <laughs> it was insane. You know, what, what that story you just told me actually gave me a bit of a lot of context for an old interaction because uh, we, uh, we we talk with Chris uh, pretty often on the, yep. the subreddit and also even more so Agostino from the EU side. Yeah. And um, I know Ago's listening, by the way. Hi, Ago. And, um, and so um, when your game came out, uh, we make themes on our sub. I don't know if you've ever seen any, if you browse the subreddit uh, for all the big releases. And this was the first indie theme we'd ever done, but we all loved the game. Uh, so I, I made a theme for it, just just for fun. You know, it was a really awful theme, but, you know, that, that sort of fit with the the theme of the game, not the game's awful, but, I mean, like, the, <laughs> the, the, the rough aesthetic, you might say. And Chris actually sent us a message saying that seeing iDarb 
um, as the subreddit's theme has like made my month. Like and it was we're amazing. Like, I remember I have we're screenshots. Like, okay. of it. Yeah, I took screenshots of your your theme, and uh, we're blown away here. Oh yeah, I, I got oh. them on my desktop still. <laughs> oh, well, see, uh, yeah, and 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 we were like, oh, that that seems like a bit of an uh, a bit of an overreaction, really. But thanks anyway, Chris. You know, but now I understand <laughs> that he actually had like a personal connection to the game, so that explains oh, yeah. why it, it cheered him up. So that that's gonna make all the mods very happy now. You've, you've just made oh, us it, all it, it did wonders. And, like we were so proud of seeing that on on Reddit because like we go there for information all the time, and it was shocking to see Idarb there when there's all these other. Like I almost say, like more appropriate games or whatever, but like to be this small game that like was built by only a few people really in our spare time, and we put a lot of love into it. But it was one of those things where it's like uh, we we kind of just expected it not to do well, and so to have it kind of do so well and get recognized and the amount of like um, stuff like you guys did and and people who, how people embraced it online, we'd be nowhere without that. And so it was amazing to see all that, and we had not expected any of it. It was shocking. Yeah, it's it's just a great game. I still play it. I have uh, parties. Awesome. I have parties regularly at my place, and it's it's that Rocket League um, Mario party, but that's reserved for when you're super drunk. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, Jackbox Party Pack, and basically all those those good time party games. And it's it's just really fun, and and it it really embraces the stupidity. Yep. Of, uh, of the internet, and and that's just great fun. You know, sometimes games don't need to be always serious. Well, that was, a, that was a critical moment in the development of the game where we had so many people worried about, like, well, you can't do these things, you can't do these things, and, like, you can't just, like, open it up to the internet because horrible things will happen. But, like, our mantra was, like, that's not our problem. We're just going to give this as a, like, almost like a vessel to the internet, and they can do whatever they want with it. And, like, for a while, when we first launched it, it was kind of bad that we didn't have a filter for the horrible things that people would say in the, the little ticker feed at the bottom. But eventually, <laughs> when we updated, we got that all that, fixed dude, up. Dude, that was a feature. That's not a... It was totally a feature. <laughs> <laughs> but there, we had so many parents going like, I have, my kids want to play the game, but we can't. And I'm like, just shut it off. Just shut it off. But like by default, we had to have something there. So, um, And then I always wanted it to be on. I didn't want to just shut it off because nobody would ever turn it on. So we had to offer filter options and all stuff eventually. But it was it was amazing because that amount of interaction, every time somebody would interact with the game, they were promoting our game. Even if it was like you know them trying to say 9-11 didn't happen or whatever. <laughs> it's still <laughs> game. It's the worst kind of promotion. It's like, here's this guy who's like completely racist, but he's mentioning IDARB. One time we played it, we had Hitler did nothing wrong just scrolling across <laughs> the bottom of the screen endlessly like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's a, it's a forum for people. <laughs> now, um, just to say that you do not want to go to one of VC's parties, Mike. I heard um, there's quite a lot goes on there that can't be said on a podcast. But um, and I totally related. It's Finland. Yeah, it's Finland. <laughs> uh, but in a totally related question to that, then I don't see this to men often. But can I visit your dungeon? Oh yeah, like. Uh... Uh... <laughs> I don't know if you guys know. It's not this kind of podcast, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I do have, but uh, but actually, the the guy who owned the house, uh, who I work with, he, he sold me his house when he was moving. He was getting ready to have some kids order, and he just invited us over one day. And he's like, "We're having dinner, or whatever." And he's like, "What do you think of the house?" We're like, "Oh yeah, this is a beautiful house." And he's like, "You want to buy it?" And we're like, "Uh, what?" And like, I never thought I would buy a house. Uh, but he sold me when he showed me that he had a, a hole in the master bedroom closet with a ladder that goes down into a, a room under the house. And uh, my wife's like, all your crap can go down there. That that's what and, and, like the the owner called that room the gimp room based off Pulp Fiction. So it's kind of weird already. 
And uh, so when we finally got the house, that was my thing. Like everything that was mine, video game, nerd, dumb stuff, and everything like that, all stuff I collected would just go down in that room. So it, uh, I've amassed this huge collection of weird oddities that are video game related. And uh, I get regular visitors who just show up and want to go see the game room. And one of those, it's kind of funny because it, it, it's people who are in the game industry. It's people who, you know, writers and stuff like that and authors, whatever. And then, uh, you know, then there's celebrities and stuff. Like we had one day at the studio, uh, Jimmy Fallon showed up who does the Tonight Show. And um, we've worked on some stuff that. before. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he's like coming over, kind of hanging out. He's just like in town or whatever. And uh, he wanted to see the game room. So we took him to my house and we went through the floor and we played Atari 800 games for the afternoon in the gimp room. <laughs> it was just kind of this <laughs> surreal moment of like, wow, this room is like more famous than I am and than I'll ever be. And this is what people want to come see. They don't even want to hang out with me. They just want to play with all this crap I have down here. <laughs> it's like being a kid again where it's like you want to go to that one kid's house who has like the ColecoVision. And you're like, I don't really like him, but he has a ColecoVision. Uh, it's kind of like that. What's the favorite part? What's your favorite item down there? You must have something that, that you just oh, would never so, part with. You know, people always ask me, and it always changes. But, there, you know, there's the personal items that I'll just push aside because I grew up with some stuff that's down there. But, like... I do like, I have an original Atari Pong and I've always, always wanted to get, it's like, I think it's the 18th one off the assembly line that I managed to find out. I know it's really cool. And, um, so I have that next to a cockpit Star Wars, uh, old Star Wars vector, uh, game. So that little lineup right there is like the most amazing part of the room for me, even though I have got all this really weird, like rare stuff. I have like half-life for dreamcast and all stuff that was like in the original packaging and all stuff. All that stuff is secondary to Pong and Star Wars. <laughs> wow. Wait, is there anything that you need to complete a set? Bear in mind, quite a few people listen to this podcast. There might be someone out there that's got something that you need. Yeah, you know, I've, I'm done with all my sets, I think. I've got everything that I want to have. And it's one of these things, too, when I started collecting stuff, it was at a time when I didn't know anybody else who was doing it. So uh, it was kind of early internet days, so there wasn't like the the groups you have now where people are like, I'm collecting all this stuff or whatever. So um, I've got most everything I want, but then the completion thing, I was never a completionist. It was always about oddities. I liked, I liked um, like I have the clay master for Psycho Mantis that was made for the McFarlane Metal Gear Solid figures. I have like oh, wow. a little clay character from the Neverhood game that I will never part with. I've got, oh, like, um, design documents for old arcade games that are handwritten and typewritten design documents. I have the fax exchanges between, um, before id was formed, it was between, uh, it was, I think it was Scott Miller and John Carmack. And there are, the, when John finally realized the guy was actually just canvassing them to try to get them out of wherever they were. I forgot, was it Apogee or something like that? I'm going to get all wrong right now on the podcast. But anyways, there's, like, these really cool little one-of-a-kind things that I, I, I really like to collect, prototypes and that sort of stuff. Um, as far as like collecting like full sets of like NES games or whatever, there's people who are way ahead of me, and I just don't have that kind of desire. I just like to get the one of a kind things, and make sure those are saved. Ah, I found my, we were talking about this last week, and it made me find it. But uh, the Micro Machines add-on to the NES, you know, it was yeah. went onto the cartridge. Yeah. We talked about that game last week, and I had to go and find mine just as a result <laughs> of that. So, <laughs> Micro Machines was one of the first like incredible party games for me been playing four player of that that and bomberman and um there was even like north and south by electronic arts all those like multi-tap style games are so good i remember that wow <laughs> holy nostalgia batman that was great 
I've got a whole head full of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to come to you for gaming knowledge. <laughs> um, now, you mentioned that you do like to go on Reddit now and again. What's some of your favorite obscure subreddits? Oh, obscure subreddits. You know, honestly, I just, I'm, I'm the person who goes on there. I don't have like a habit trail. I go in and I go down the rabbit hole. So if somebody's going off about something or some developer that's screwing up, like that's the stuff I just dive into just to see like, what were were the um, psychological kind of angles coming from? Because when people attack like a developer or a game or whatever, that's so fascinating to me. And trying to see like how many people are talking about it and are siding with some kind of issue, and then trying to calibrate that with what the real world probably thinks. And more often than not, it's usually for me when I go down that rabbit hole, it's to try to determine like, is this really an issue or is this a subreddit issue kind of thing or whatever. Yeah. You know, like, have you been following the the drama with No Man's Sky then? There's yes, a lot of very absolutely. upset people on Reddit. Oh. That's, that's exactly what I was thinking when I was talking about that because uh, those guys are amazing that worked on that game. They worked really hard on that game. And you believe only the, 12 people made that game? Holy crap. It, it's mind-boggling. And I, like, I give them all the credit in the world. The thing was is it started off as a 12-person game studio making this game, and the hype got way ahead of the studio and what they were ever capable of. Mm-hmm. And it's not any knock on them at all. In fact, like what they've done is amazing. But like there were people expecting so much more from that game that were just it was unreasonable the amount of expectation they had. And what it does, it does really well. And it should be like anybody who kind of knows what they were doing and stuff knew where the limits were going to be. And so it's just that's the thing that kind of on a psychological level fascinates me because how do you control that hype? How do you calibre, you know, kind of set the direction for that hype and 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 dampen it as much as you can in the areas that it shouldn't be so high and then how do you reinforce the areas it should and i think sony did their best with that and the developer definitely sean and those guys did a great job at doing it but nobody was listening it's like <laughs> no matter how loud they were about it nobody would listen it was just already it, it taken off for on a life of its own and that's the stuff that like i spent a lot of time looking at because when you're doing something especially since we're we're planning follow-ups and things that are very idarb like where we're going to embrace the internet even more and more and, and all the tools and everything that people have available for it, that stuff is, you know, we have to take a look at that and we have to see, like, how do we get around that? How do we embrace that kind of, you know, that kind of hate that could come from something, but also make sure that it's part of the narrative of something rather than just having it pointed directly at you like a shotgun and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So speaking of what you just mentioned there, you're doing some follow-ups to certain things. Can you uh, tell us a little, about what, a little bit about what you're doing at the moment <laughs> and stuff like that? I know you got NDAs and whatnot, but... Oh, yeah, but I, I, can, I can give you hints. Um, oh, well, yes, one thing, we like hints. We're, we're definitely doing a, a, this VR game called Giant Cop, uh, which I'm, I'm really proud of. It's our studio in Newfoundland that's been working on this really hard, and it's going to be launching for Oculus and then uh, I think a little bit after for, for the Vive. There was a big controversy about this is exactly why I look at this stuff. Because um, we had built it on the Vive originally, we'd shared it with everybody, and we're showing demos on the Vive, and then um, you know this stuff costs money, and Oculus came to us and said, "Hey, we'll help you fund this as long as you launch on our platform first and follow these certain conditions and all stuff," which makes total sense. Um, and we weren't talking about like never being on Vive; it was just like, "Oh, cool, we can redirect our attention and just like get the things done that we want," and they would help us on all kinds of levels, like uh, you know just support as far as technology and program, else you know everything you can name. And so it was just didn't seem like anything to us. We're like, okay, let's do that. And so we come out and we announce our like, you know, launch platform and all stuff and all the hate. I mean, we got people talking about, you know, we betrayed them. We did all this stuff. And there was something that was bad. Like we had put it up for presale on Steam for Vive. 
uh, when we were, I don't even remember when we did it or who did it or anything like that. It was just, it was up there. And so people were buying it and, and anticipating this, but we never, I don't think we ever had a release date or anything. Um, but you know, that, that had to get sorted out. And so we had to deal with that, but, uh, you know, it was just, it was just so messed up. And so we had to come out and explain, we had to really overshare what the logic was, why we we're doing it. And it, we weren't even a Kickstarter where you should be doing that. We were just trying to make sure that people didn't hate us at the end of the day and that we were mm-hmm. fair to everybody. And so that was a that was definitely a challenging thing. I, I wasn't I, I was involved in that a little bit, but it was Ryan Hale and the guys up in Newfoundland who are awesome. They did a great job of making sure that everybody understood why and where and how and all that sort of stuff. And it's just a shame that that sort of thing kind of got in the way of the development a bit. Like everything that we we're hoping to gain, to you know, kind of help get the game out there, and make it better, um, was kind of put on delay to try to deal with the the kind of um, kind of mess that came out of all that. And so. Um, did a good job, and that game, it's really fun, and it's really stupid, and I think people are going to really enjoy it, and it's going to be on everything, so nobody has to worry about it, um, but uh, it's uh, that, that's going to be a good one, so I want people to keep that top of mind. If you check it out, it's you'll see, just put in Giant Cop VR, and you'll find all kinds of stories on that, and then um, we do have a few other things kind of going on. We have, uh, it's hard to, without, without giving away too much, but we have, uh, we, we had IDAR, we did everything there. Um, there were, you know, we've been trying to like figure out what our plan is for IDAR and what we do with it. And so that's become its own kind of business unit. And we have more planned in that, that area. And it's not just more IDAR, but more IDAR like process kind of games, like, uh, the, the kind of process of working with the community to create a game transparently and sharing that with them as we develop and making them more and more integrated with the creation process. That's all getting revved up for this next round. And so that, that includes things like. Not just like suggestions over Twitter or anything. It's going to be a whole platform to help us interact with our community to make games more directly, and that's like direct impact on how high somebody might jump in a game or whatever in the moment, live kind of stuff. And so that's really exciting for us, and um, we'll have some news hopefully soon on that. And that'll be that'll be Xbox, Windows, and everywhere probably. So um, we'll, we'll talk more about that soon. And then we have. Right. Obviously, we have our digital eclipse side of the business, which launched the Mega Man Legacy Collection, and they've been pretty busy in, in that arm of the company working on things like that. And so we'll have a, a few more announcements by the end of the year there, and probably um, probably some stuff that'll excite a lot of people. But we're really focused because of the whole classic bend that we have, anyways. We're really focused on making sure that we take some of these classic games and treat them in a way that's like the like equivalent to like the Criterion Collection. Uh, mm-hmm. like, you know, Blu-ray and stuff. So we want to go back and find these game franchises that I think a lot of current generation game players are familiar with but haven't really played intimately and then put a lot of historical context around it and make sure that they understand what impact it had and how much of an impact it had on the games they play today, all that kind of stuff. So we're finding some really amazing titles that haven't been done in a while, but they're really good, and we're going to bring those back. And so you, you'll, you'll be hearing more about that soon, too. And then uh, outside of that, the other ocean side... <laughs> There's a whole bunch. Wait, wait of hold on, on, hold on. I still haven't sent my email to Gawker saying that Mike Micah has confirmed IDARB two on our podcast. <laughs> I, <laughs> Sorry, I will not say IDARB two yet, but uh, yeah, that would, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> Sorry. And Paul. what that is, who knows what IDARB two would be, right? Like, I don't know. I have yeah. no idea. Um, it's it's up to the internet. And uh, and then the other ocean side, we have a bunch of stuff going on there that um, I wish I could talk about right now, but. Uh, we'll, wait till you're, we'll wait until we're off air and I won't talk about it anywhere, I promise. All right, that, that's fine. Across. <laughs> um, <laughs> can I just, just to go back to, to uh, 
you were talking about VR earlier on. Is the VR war worse than the console war? You know, I think uh, I think the vitriol might be a little. It's not really. To be honest, it's about the same. The thing is, people are investing a lot of money in the kit that they're buying, and they can't afford to have multiple. Most people. So yeah. it's completely fair to see somebody who's made buying decisions based off of a game that hinted that you're going to be on their platform or whatever, and then to have that change or seemingly change or whatever, um, you could see why people get pissed off. And I don't blame them one bit. None of us do. And so it's like one of those things that we're, we're, we're now better about and make sure that we're messaging things a little more appropriately because mm -hmm. we're kind of shoot from the hip type of guys where, okay, we're on this platform today. We'll probably be on another platform tomorrow, do whatever. But like we never really thought about the impact and the repercussion that has on people and you know basically the kind of investments they're making and how, how they're doing because they have to read the tea leaves and are very excited about something like a new technology yeah and so they'll, they'll start investing early and so you, we got to keep that in our heads when we're doing this sort of stuff we don't want to screw anybody over or at least make them feel like that so um it's it's interesting because it's also new and nobody knows who's going to be the winner everybody wants the, the thing they're investing in to be the winner when i think everybody will be so it's going to be an interesting few years as vr gets you know kind of uh, consumer friendly. It's it's not there yet, right? So yeah, it's, we've got a few years for this to settle. Yeah, yeah exactly. So you have PlayStation VR. coming out. You have all these players, and who knows who's going to have the biggest impact? So for for us, we're in a we're in a place where we're kind of, um, uh, I'd almost say like we're kind of uh, spoiled a bit because as developers we have everything. So we, we just look at like what's easiest to do things on, what's cheapest for us, but also has the highest impact, and what's best for the consumer and the player, and blah blah blah. So we try to take all that into account, but sometimes we you know. We have to do what we can afford to do and stuff like that, and we have to figure out how how best to deploy that. And in the case of Giant Cop, I think our ultimate answer for that is we're going to be on everything as as much as we can be, and and just keep pushing for that because at the end of the day, any one of these VR uh, platforms could be the the standout winner. But we're also gonna we have to partner with people to help us out because we're so small. Yeah. Are you trying to tell me that making video games costs money? That you know what that's the, that's most when I have arguments. With like uh, gamers, that's usually what it comes down to is like they, they don't, not every gamer, but there's certain gamers out there who would be like, well, why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? And you're like, because that's a million dollars and we don't have it. <laughs> like, you can foot the bill and we'll put your name on it and everything if you want, but. Uh, that, that'd be that quite shit. an interesting Kickstarter, like yeah. a million dollars and you can have your name in the game. The game can be called after you. Why not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hell. So, uh, Bobby Trenton's IDARB2. There we go. <laughs> so, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I've got to update the email. Um, so, um, Mike, we have one last question uh, that we ask all of our guests, and it's Ross's job to ask it, but I'm just going to warn you that it is serious, hard-hitting video game okay. journalism. So prepare yourself. Go for right. it, Ross. Okay. So, which classic video game character would you or could you knock out with one punch? Oh, that could knock out with one punch. Um, I was going to say thing on a spring, but he bounced back. Mm -hmm. That uh, could cause some bad consequences. There could. I, I, if I don't have eye protection or something, that'd be bad. Yeah. Um, definitely Frank Bruno's out of the question because that wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, no. I don't even know why I thought about that. That's stupid. Um Hmm. I mean, give you some context. Major Nelson said Frogger. Um, I can see that, but like that's that's <laughs> his speed, right? He'd beat up a frog. But yeah, um, one of my favorites was actually one of our, our regular co-hosts who didn't join us this week, Jesse. He is. Uh, he said Paperboy. 
Oh God. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's like the baby from Baby's Day Out. Like, yeah, probably. <laughs> so Mike uh, Michael wants to punch babies, right? Moving on to the next. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I'm just looking for self-preservation here. I'm just going for the easiest target. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I would. I'd probably go. I, I would actually probably go with Dig Dug. I would go Dig with him because he's the size of a turnip. Like that's pr- probably the safest bet I have. I people don't usually measure size in turnips. <laughs> well, there's turnips in the game. I'm looking yeah. at them like it's the size of that. Well, people <laughs> measure things in bananas on Reddit. Banana for scale. Or apples, Smurfs, or whatever. But like, yeah, Dig Dug. He's the size of a turnip. I can take him. Okay. Lock it in. Amazing Lock answer. Lock that in. So, Mike, before we let you go, um, Gamescom begins today in the future for us, but when you're listening, it's going to be Gamescom day today. Um, so, get hype. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, previous Gamescoms? If you have any awesome stories, have you been to Gamescom before? And, and what are you looking forward to this year? Oh, you know, here's one of the things. This is the horrible secret of Mike Micah. I've never been to a Gamescom, but I, I, it's terrible because every time a Gamescom comes around is when we've been on the worst possible deadlines. Uh. And so all we do is we look like just we look at the Reddit. We, we watch everybody's tweeting and find out what's going on at the show because Gamescom at the end of the day is the biggest show for games now. There's it is. hands down. No, it is literally the biggest else. Yeah, I it's actually, literally I and it, most important, and it's the most important show, right? So things that could announce there, that's the venue everything has to get announced at. And so I'm really, really excited to see what's coming out of the, the VR world out of Gamescom, and particularly because we have PlayStation VR launching, and I'm sure there's a lot of like things that have been held back from Sony for that. You've got uh, Steam getting ready to double down, HTC doubling down and everything. So I'm stoked to see what comes out of the, the kind of the, the VR space. Because there's been, I, I've been privy to some projects. I've gone and tested stuff for other developers where I'm like, when are you going to announce this? Because this is amazing. When are you going to announce it? So I think Gamescom is ground zero for all of that. And so I'm just sitting back with my bucket of popcorn, getting ready to watch what everybody's talking about and uh, watch the streams. Because this year is probably one of the most pivotal. If you think about it, it's got the kind of the, we call it the midlife crisis for consoles because it's getting ready to go into phase two, where now they have to work hard to get. Uh, beyond the, the hardcore gaming base for each platform. So Xbox and Sony are going to be fighting tooth and nail to get new users to their devices. And you're going to see those things that are probably, like I think this is the best time for experiments because you're going to have people trying to figure out what's going to bring the Pokemon Go types and these kind of people to consoles and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, you have like cross-play and all stuff kind of playing a big role. But also we have new technologies like VR. This is the show that's really serious about VR versus the previous years because now these things are available and they're going to be available. So this is the time to strike. And so the war that we're talking about for VR is going to happen now, and it's going to start with Gamescom, I believe. So you're going to see that all kind of going down that way. But then you have new uh, gaming platforms that are going to be um, probably surfacing at Gamescom as well that uh, hopefully you get at least some hints towards or whatever, but the, 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 the direction where things are going in the future, this, the messaging that's going to happen at Gamescom, it's going to have to be really strong and, and, and build confidence in the game space for people who have been following game consoles and all stuff. Uh, at, and and following them with the threat of them possibly going away in the last few years where people are like, do we need consoles or whatever? So I think the answer to that is going to really be a strong message coming from all the console manufacturers as well as PC manufacturers and everybody talking about where gaming is going on their platforms on top of mobile and everything else too. Because Pokemon Go is shaking everything up. You've got oh, people yeah. who are looking at augmented reality. Because we say VR, but that, in my mind, it even includes augmented reality. Things like Microsoft HoloLens or Magic Leap and these sorts of things that 
can deliver an even more impactful experience for that kind of game, that's all going to be on the table. And like uh, what you're saying is 100% true because I've actually got some like um, some press details for Gamescom, and it shows you know how much of what is going to be there, where everybody is, yada yada yada, and there is a crap ton of VR stuff this year, and Microsoft and Sony are going like all in, and and it it, it is exactly as you say, uh, basically that, that that there's going to be just tons of everyone everywhere it, it's actually the biggest gamescom yet yeah. by way of um the amount of people and the amount of booths that they have and i am going to be or rather if you're listening to this as it's released i am here at ground zero i will be wandering around everywhere and i will also be at the xbox one fan fest so make sure you come over and say hi i will probably be dressed like a pirate so keep your eye open for uh, Scandinavian pirates. And uh, anyone should come and look for me and find me because there will be wicked high fives. Uh, they're up for grabs. You're giving away for free? Uh, well, yeah, basically. I actually have a, a, a bit of a challenge going on between uh, Major Nelson and also uh, Aaron Greenberg as to who can give the most <laughs> epic high five to me personally. So... It's, it's very serious business. So if anyone thinks they can deliver a better high five than Aaron Greenberg or Major Nelson, come find me. Tall, I don't think I can even pirate. imagine. I can't imagine a bigger high five from you like, than those two guys. Well, they give out the biggest high fives. It's, it's, it either happens or it doesn't. And I may right. or may not survive this, guys. So, uh, <laughs> Ross, if I don't make it back from Gamescom, avenge me next year, please. For no. me's sake, don't miss. Don't miss. <laughs> Uh, right, well, Mike, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, spend time with us and all the people from the subreddit, and we'll hope to hear you, we'll hear from you soon when IDUB2 is released. No, this has been awesome. So uh, let's talk soon, and uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to Xbox One Party Chat Podcast. This week in the subreddit... So thanks, Mike, for that amazing interview. But let's find out what's been happening in the subreddit this week. So, Reese, it's just, well, Gamescom started today, so the news hasn't been huge this week, has it? It's not been massive amounts of news happening. Absolutely not. Uh, in fact, it's it's been almost completely dead. Um, we did have the Battlefield 1 Gamescom trailer, which looked awesome just just briefly how awesome did that look ross i will describe it to you right now horses arabia swords explosions battle train sandstorms dogfighting yes yes (laughs) but uh there was actually one bit of rather actually important xbox one related news that may have slipped past a few people and that is that uh, microsoft is acquiring the Beam Interactive Streaming Service, which is a, uh, um, a rival to Twitch, and it was posted onto the sub by our very own Major Nelson. Um, basically, yeah, it's it's a rival to Twitch, and it has some really cool features uh, that Twitch doesn't have to really drive engagement. Like you get points and level up based on how much you watch, and uh, you can actually interact with streams, but interacting with streams costs like currency that you earn by watching and being a good watcher and not being like you know 
a Twitter troll. Uh, uh, not Twitter troll, sorry, a Twitch troll. So uh, what do you think, Ross? Uh, do you stream? Uh, I, how, how do you think this will affect this? What do you think Microsoft plans to do with Beam? I think, you know, I hope they're going to integrate it into the core service. That mm-hmm. That's what I hope. I hope this is why they've bought it. And I mean, um, Twitch you know, integration is already really good on the Xbox One, especially like when you go to the store and you can just scroll down and you can see streams of Twitch, which is like it's like leagues above the Twitch integration on the PS4. So, so how, how do you think they would use that like as something that they actually owned? Well, it's the interactive stuff. So, like you know, Josh Steen, <laughs> Steen, um, that's <laughs> on the podcast does his weekly Xbox stream, and he was playing through Quantum Break for the 18th time, and basically imagine that with interactive streams. So Xbox were putting on, uh, you know, a big event or or something's happening and people are joining in and they have a way to interact with these people playing. Now that is, you're going to hold a much better audience by doing that than just simply streaming. And for yes. me, it's the next evolution of streaming. We just had Mike Micah talking about the fact that you, would, you could drop Twitter hash bombs into iDARP and actually people interacting with their stream, I think, is, is the natural evolution Microsoft can obviously see that, and that's why they've, they've went ahead and done this. Now, I don't know the inside details of it, or if that's what they're planning, if it's something totally different, but if that was me, that's the kind of technology I would want integrated into my core service. Yeah, I mean, it, it really does make a lot of sense now that you speak like that, especially when you think of, like, there will be, like, a slick-as-hell uh, first-party Microsoft Beam app for streaming. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and built like, the ground up. It's going yeah, to be... Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. Like, and, I, I and really we have, can't wait. Yeah, we, we have uh, Snap, which is something that like the PS4 does not have. And if you have, uh, basically now, snapping Twitch is just relegated to reading the, the chat. But with these interactive elements of Beam, like snapping uh, a, a stream could actually have like way more cool stuff and interactive elements in it. Yeah, literally the possibilities are endless with this. And for someone like Beam, of course, you've got the financial success of being bought over, but to have all those technical guys at Microsoft, you know, the things that they could do with this, I really really can't wait to see what's going to happen. I I know people who have either been bought by Microsoft or who have worked in companies that Microsoft has, like, assisted personally with, and all of them, no matter what their opinions of Microsoft or Xbox or, or whatever, they all have said that how amazing it is to be connected to all of these people who can get stuff done, who who know technology, you know, pe- the people who made Windows, you know, like uh, it, they, they all say it's it's amazing to, to have those people like able to help you out. <laughs> yeah, well, definitely. What else has yeah. been happening? What else has been happening? Well, Reese, I've got some really, really good news, and I'm sure you already know this, but user Armen107, or maybe it's Armin107, I don't know. I don't know. A pirate men? Are men? No. <laughs> um, basically, he posted, or she, that Xbox One was the best-selling console in July. Woo! Is that a surprise to you? No. Because he released a new console. 
Exactly. And, and I, I don't think Sony is surprised. I don't think Nintendo is surprised. I don't think McDonald's are surprised that the Microsoft Xbox One was the best-selling console in July. It's They released a Slim, and it's it's cool. And I mean, it not only is it cheap and new, but it's also given an excuse for many people who already own an Xbox One to go out and purchase another one because they want the smaller copy. Yeah. D- did people... you get yours yet? I haven't. No, I haven't. Um, Gears one. You're holding out for the Gears one, right? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I, I almost forgot about it with the lasers. <laughs> um, if anyone wants to send me one, you know, feel free. But I doubt that will happen. Um, but anyway, the 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 fact, yeah, they released a new console, so they're always going to be number one. But I had a few friends only had PS4s, and they've went out and got themselves an Xbox One now. Okay, just because it was cheaper, or well, it was a good. It was sort of decent deals that we're going to get for it they were thinking about it but didn't really know if they were going to or not and then with Gears and Forza and the lineup that they have they just bit the bullet and bought them. Two two friends of mine have actually bought one. Okay well I mean this is about the same time in a console's lifetime that uh I, what was it that Mike just called it a moment ago like uh the middle a middle age crisis. midlife crisis basically about this time in a console's lifetime the console war has died off. Uh, like it's always completely intense for the first year uh, when everyone's like, my console's best, my console's best. But at about this time, both consoles drop in price to fairly reasonable and they both become roughly the same price. And by now they both have really good libraries with really good exclusives and plenty of multiplat games. And so this is the time when people actually just start like give up on the whole console fanaticness and start actually buying the other console. I mean, uh, most people I know who owned an Xbox 360 ended up buying a PS3 after three, four years. I think there's always a game, isn't it? There's always a point where there's a game where you think, I need to play that. Yeah, I mean, it happens to the best of us. That's why I own a Wii U. I mean, I needed Mario Kart 8 and Mario Party and... And basically, I needed Nintendo games in my life again, especially their focus on local co-op. You know how much I love local co-op. Yeah. I was like, yeah, okay. I'm in. I'm. I'm. I'm in. You got me, Nintendo. Well played. Well, and <laughs> I can't believe as well though, is because of digital libraries and things like that, is the amount of people back picking up a second console. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so easy now, isn't it? You just you just plug in the old console, and then when it boots up, you put your password in, and boom, it's exactly the same as your last one. Everything is exactly where you left it. Exactly. So, you know, this is a very, very ge- different generation, and it's exciting to see where it's going to go, and I'm looking forward to getting a hold of mine. Let us know in the comments below what your experiences are with the S. But can yeah, I just say... get one? Yeah. We are number one. We are number one. We are number one. Well, we are the Xbox One. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> that was an awful dad joke. I'm sorry, everyone who had to listen to that. But, guys, that's basically all we have time for because we had such a long and awesome interview with mike he's a cool guy we we didn't want to shut him up he just 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 talk mike talk forever but um so basically there's only one thing left to say and that is for me to remind you that gamescom is going on right now and i am there so hit me up keep your eye out for me i'm probably dressed as a pirate i will be at the xbox one fan fest so come and see me uh, basically just walk around and ask, are, are, are you the guy from the podcast? Are you the guy from the podcast? Eventually someone's going to say yes. It might be me, who knows. But uh, if you do manage to find up 
uh, to find me. Not only is there high fives on offer, but if you want, uh, I am prepared to record something uh, like a shout out. You can say who you are or whatever. Just, just say something. I'll record it and it's all going to end up on the podcast when I get back from Gamescom. Unless it's yeah. uh, unless it's severely severely questionable, which it probably will be. But like, we can probably look forward to that be. anyway. Uh, especially at the ones towards the end of the day when everyone's had a bit to drink. But that's what bleeping's for. So I got Ross for here. <laughs> right. Well, anyways, for another week, Xbox off. You're listening to Xbox One Party Chat podcast. The official podcast of the Xbox One subreddit. Let's do this. Hello, hello. Hey. Hi. How's it going? Good. Very well, thank you. Um, How's things going with yourself? Pretty good. It's the beginning of a new week here, so... Hopefully, uh, hopefully you hear me all right. Yeah. Yeah, you sound fine. Sounds a bit okay, like good. you're in a, a hallway. I'm in our conference room, which is like the only place I can get some privacy right now, and it's gigantic. Ah. Uh, oh. Yeah. Well, hold on one second. I'm going to try something out. I'm going to see if I can put a pillow behind the microphone to help it out. Hold on. Okay. It's fine. Mike, yeah, it's honestly not that bad. I was just being a smartass. Why does he have a pillow yeah, in the conference room? You never know. How's that? Is that better? <laughs> Why Actually, do you yes. have a pillow in the conference room? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 